how do we build the best athlete possible? Because we are building athletes that happen to play baseball. We're not building baseball players. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. I am pumped to introduce Josh Heenan, President of Advanced Therapy and Performance Integrated Medicine and Strength Coach. We go in depth discussing his 90 mile an hour formula, what his favorite lifts are, and he gives us several ways to measure gains in the weight room that translate to the field. I learned a ton from this episode, and I think you will too. So here is Josh Heenan. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show today. All right. Thanks for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Well, for those in the baseball world who might not know where you came from or how you got your start, can you give us a short snapshot of how you got your start in baseball? Yeah. So um, I played baseball all the way through junior college. Um, I was a decent, you know, five, nine hundred and fifty pound pitcher touching 85 um, on a good day. And uh, transferred to D1 University, uh, Sacred Heart University in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, and uh, played two fall balls there. Was cut from both of them on my last fall ball. Basically, they we were doing some uh, some outfield drills, like you know, after our PFPs, we we're running sprints and all that stuff. And uh, and basically, the head coach uh, Wayne Mazzoni grabbed me and was like, "Hey, does anybody know some other drills we can do in terms of training?" So I ran. I just kind of took the reins and ran our guys through a bunch of stuff. And he was like, all right, you're like a mediocre pitcher at best. And you're just like blowing our guys away. What is going on? I'm like, you know, I've known since I was 13 years old that this is this is what I want to do when my baseball career is over. And since then, I, you know, went on and became the head strength coach there, um, taking over someone that was already there and was there for five years, winning a couple of championships in the Northeast Conference and making the national tournament a couple of times. You know, now I'm the president of Advanced Therapy and Performance, where we have locations in uh, Connecticut. And, you know, in the in the process of all that, I've gotten my master's in uh, undergrad was bachelor's of um, exercise science, master's in human movement and sports psychology. I have a doctorate in integrated medicine, which is not a medical doctorate, but it does allow me to, you know, um, work with athletes and get my hands on them and do some um, integrated medicine techniques. And then I'm also currently um, getting my acupuncture master's in kind of a um, really earthy grainy type of acupuncture and seeing how we can leverage that tool and bring it back for our athletes. Wow, that's awesome. And it sounds like you are very well-rounded, but I'm curious. You said you went from, you know, getting cut slash mediocre pitcher in your own words to like the strength and conditioning coach. So are you the same age as all the kids that you're working with? I was actually, um, it was my senior year as a transfer. So I had, I was a semester behind. So some of the guys were older than me. Hmm. Um, some were, were my age and many were younger. Um, and it was, you know, I think it's, uh, I give the coaching stack, staff there, Nick Giaquinto and uh, Wayne Mazzoni, a lot of credit for, for giving me the opportunity because I think they saw that, that I had a skill set that was a little bit different than their typical strength coaches that were kind of working through the university. And they saw that, you know, I could command a room and, and I had the the credibility of, of my peers and the, and the respect of my peers. And, you know, we, we kind of ran with it and did, did really well in that time frame. No kidding. Credit to them. And, and that's fantastic. And so while we're on the subject of you being a strength and conditioning coach, uh, you, we all know that this, this podcast is, is player development based 
And can you take us through your 90 mile an hour formula, what that entails and how you guys came up with that? Yeah. So basically the 90 mile an hour formula is a criteria that I've come up with over the last 10 years, basically to, you know, scratch my own itch, as you were saying earlier on, on for the podcast. And for me, it was, I threw, I could long toss between 360 and 380, 360 feet, 380 feet in high school. I could, I could launch a ball. I was small. As I said, I was only 150, 155 pounds, and I could not figure out why I couldn't throw as hard as some of the other guys. Cause I was deadlifting in the the mid fours. I was um, back squatting in the mid fours, and you know I was very strong in a lot of different things. It just never transferred to the mound. And you know, so I, I after having worked with so many athletes and pr- uh, primarily baseball players, I kind of tried to nail down what are the commonalities we see with with our athletes that are number one really healthy and number two that are touching ninety. And a lot of people take the ninety mile an hour formula as something just for pitchers, but I see it, we see it as a universal oversight of where we want our athletes to be and how we're going to maneuver them to get bigger, faster, stronger as quickly as human, humanly possible. So there's there's really a handful of categories here. The first one is our momentum potential, which is our height in inches. So I'm 5'9", which makes me 69 inches, times 2.5 uh, equals our minimum uh, ideal body weight. So for me, that's going to be about 170, 175 pounds. And we scale that to however tall that athlete is. And again, a lot of people take it out of context. It's the minimum ideal body weight. Mm -hmm. I truly believe uh, we will come out with something in the near future that says the ideal body weight is 2.75 to 3.25 times your height in inches. So for me, that would be an ideal body weight of somewhere in, um, you know, the 190 to 210 range, which would be rather large for my frame. But we look at our, our most elite level pitchers that we have access to and the elite level guys that we see at the next level. And we start to draw some, some correlations there along with the research we've done in it. So that's point one is our, our body weight. You need to have that enough body weight to be able to put force into the ground and create momentum to drive that ball towards home plate. And that allows us to actually, you know, just use that momentum to create the, the actual leverage to throw harder. And if you look at someone, some of the bigger guys like CC Sabathia, who really only had some drop offs in his career when he had knee issues, mm-hmm. uh, as far as velo goes, he's maintained a lot of extra body weight. And now I'm not saying I want guys to go out there and be a hundred pounds overweight, but that extra body weight, I believe, you know, feeds into the opportunity to throw harder. The next point is our, uh, force production, which is literally just putting force in the ground. And we quantify it by a deadlift of 400 pounds for one rep max as our minimum baseline there. What deadlift they utilize, it's literally all about putting force on the ground. It could be a trap bar deadlift, it could be a sumo deadlift, it could be a conventional deadlift. It's all about putting that force into the ground and and being able to control it through your body. Uh, With the caveat, obviously, good form for all of these. Our stable power position is our barbell reverse lunge. So we throw a barbell on guy's back, we put their ideal body weight or their current body weight on the bar, and we do 10 reps on one side, 10 on the other. It's it's pretty astounding how many elite level throwers. We had a guy that was that was low 90s, came into us two days ago, throws very hard, is getting looked at by lots of major league guys and uh, scouts, excuse me, and he cannot body weight lunge without pain. Hmm. So we have a very, very large hiccup with him in trying to figure out what we need to do to get him pain-free. Now, we got him pain-free in his first session, but we need to get him strong because 
he's been dealing with elbow pain, no coincidence, in my opinion, for, you know, four years now. There's there's a reason why he can't lunge, but he has elbow pain and he's trying to throw a ball 92, 94 miles an hour. Our force transfer is basically uh, the next category where we're looking at where your arm is. So can you do a chin up, arm up overhead, and then control that force all the way down and then control it all the way back up in your eccentric elongating that arm? It really gives us a good telltale of how much upper back strength, core stability, um, and and just general like arm strength you're going to have both bicep, uh, lateral delts, anterior delts, posterior delt stuff. Um, we're just, we're just looking to see, do you have that quality to be able to move 250 pounds for one rep? That is our real basic quantification of our upper body strength. Sure. We look at that. Yeah. We look at that total weight as our body weight plus the additional external weight for someone like me, who's 170 pounds, I'm going to need to be able to put on 80 pounds to my body and strap onto external weight and do one chin up and then control myself down. Uh, and then the last category is our arm power where we're looking at, um, a 300 foot long toss is our minimum arm power. We need to see for a guy that we know can throw 90. So if you can, if you can throw 300 feet in a long toss, even get a crow hop in there, whatever you need, you can, you have to be able to have that ball come out of your hand at 90 miles an hour. We could, we could argue and debate the launch angle there and whatnot, but really that 300 mark is very consistent for our athletes. If they can throw 300 feet, that means they can touch 90. Now, can they hit the rest of the formula? If they can, then we need to transfer it to the mound. So that's, that's the 90 mile an hour formula. Oh, that's great. And, and at the bottom, you also have optimal authentic mechanics. Can you dive into those just a little bit for us? Yeah. So, so we look, we look at our, we look at our athletes as can they repeat their mechanics? And we've done some weighted ball studies. We've done some, some trials as far as using counterbalances. So a, a weighted ball in their glove hand. Um, we look at a whole bunch of different, um, metrics and mechanics to see, are these guys breaking down or are they enhancing when we add a weighted ball or a counterbalance? And the thing that we've come across the board of is our guys that are elite level throwers, regardless if they're, you know, college or professional, the guys who are very elite, we can give them a five ounce ball and we can give them a 14 ounce ball and they have the same exact arm mechanics every single time. Hmm. And that, that allows us to kind of see you have those mechanics and you can repeat them. The, the issue is the issue of like our UCL tears and some of our shoulder issues really kind of backs down to me. Do we have the ability to absorb all that force from our musculature, be it our lower body, core stability, trunk stability, and upper body to decelerate properly and not have those issues, especially the UCL injuries. So if we're preparing an athlete to have those optimal authentic movement mechanics and using them over and over and making sure that they're able to control the motions that they want to have to be able to throw harder and they're doing it over and over again, they're going to start to build strength in those motions. But when you look at a guy who constantly, you know, moves their arm slot, constantly can't get into the right position, can't find the strike zone is very on and off on the mound. Those are, those are red flags for us where we need to make sure that we kind of dumb it down and make sure that they can control their mechanics over and over again so that they actually strengthen the right mechanics and then they can relay them onto the mound without subjecting themselves to unnecessary injury. Now, I love that. And this is a little bit off 
off script. We hear the term repeating your mechanics just all all the time, right? Yep. So for a, for a rookie coach out there, what does that even mean, and and how do we how do we quantify that, or how do we measure it without just doing it a ton? If that makes sense. For me, we're just looking we're just looking for guys trying to get their arm in an arm slot that they deem or their pitching coaches or you know the collaborative group deems the spot where they want to be if they can replicate their arm mechanics over and over again that means that they're going to be in a spot where they can control it very very simply and that also probably means that they're strong enough in their lower half and in their trunk stability to replicate those mechanics as i said with that guy that came in the other day that was, you know, low to mid nineties, very consistently, but can't do a lunge. Him having the ability to actually replicate his arm slot on a regular basis, even though he can't lunge his body weight without pain or previously couldn't do it without pain is highly unlikely in my opinion. And what we see is we see a lot of guys that come in and have UCL injuries and they can't reverse lunge their body weight on the bar for reps, which means to me, they're not strong enough to throw 90 without having arm pain. No, that makes sense and and I love it. But let's let's go ahead and uh get into the to the actual development part and what you guys do for that. Okay. So, say uh player X walks in the door and uh, fall is a great time to obviously develop what we're trying to. And so he walks in the door in the fall. Now, keep in mind most of our listeners uh deal with with team sports, so so you may say what you guys would do and then maybe give us some give us some help on how we can how we can do that in a team setting as well if you don't mind but yep long story short player x walks in the door in august and says hey josh uh, i would love to be trained by you guys what's the first thing you guys would do so we start with a, a movement in orthopedic uh movement orthopedic and uh performance assessment where we're looking at they're just basic functional movements. So we use a top tier approach of of the uh, selective functional movement assessment, which is a which is a, a kind of a spinoff of the. It's considered the quote unquote medical version of the FMS. Uh, we like it because it kind of keeps everybody on our team in check of we're looking for the same things from that from that SFMA that selective functional movement assessment. We start to break down actual just functional biomechanical movements. From there, that tells us what an athlete can do, physically can do, physically can't do, where they might have some limitations. And then we start to figure, how do we develop them into the greatest athlete possible? Uh, If it's a baseball player that wants to throw harder, we will oftentimes, not always, we'll get them to do the 90 mile an hour formula right away and test it and see, you know, what is their deadlift? What is their lunge capacity? uh, How are their chin-ups? What's their quality of push-ups? What's their quality of a walking lunge? different movements like that. And then we just splay it back in and say, how do we build the best athlete possible? Because we are building athletes that happen to play baseball. We're not building baseball players. Mm, um, once once we build optimal athletics, that's that's easy to turn someone into a harder thrower that's going to be durable and and you know have a longer career. So from there, then we figure out what's our biggest domino. And that's why I like the 90 mile an hour formula. And that's why I put it out there for free. So everybody can have a look and see what we're doing in house and how, how we layer that onto our movement mechanics. If a guy moves really well, and let's say, let's say you came in, John, and you have no movement restrictions Mm -hmm. and we run you through the, the 90 mile an hour formula. And we say, you know what, like, these are, these are our big, these are our big rocks. These are our big, uh, our 80, 20, if you will, 
sure of the things that we, of the things that we want to accomplish and we don't care how we train to get you to hit all those numbers we just want you to hit the numbers because we know that our numbers uh, having run this on over a thousand athletes now we know that that if you can do these metrics then and you can hit the metrics with quality form that you're going to be exponentially less likely for injury and exponentially uh, more likely to throw a lot harder than 90. So we would look and say, where where are you lacking the most? And if you can deadlift 500 pounds and you can do, you know, a body weight chin up 10 times and you can do a regular chin up with um, with some added load to be 250 pounds for a rep or two, and but your reverse lunge is no good, then we gotta we gotta spend some more time working on your single leg strength, working on your accelerated ability to come out of that reverse lunge, working on a forward lunge, working on different mechanics to get you to be more powerful in that position that that really relays itself to what you're going to be utilizing, whether it's on the mound in that split stance position throwing, whether it's sprinting, which is also a split stance position, and the final position of, of swinging a bat, you're actually putting force into the ground in a split stance position. So it, it layers itself really well to be function for every single position. And that's where we build the programs from. We figure out your weakest link and then we say, let's, let's attack it. So we bring that up and then we, we kind of go from there. So ideally, how often would you see the kids and how many days of the week would you be actually in the weight room versus maybe just throwing? Well, that it really, I think again, all this stuff. Yeah, it, it all depends. And, and it really depends on the athlete. We're, we're fortunate to be in the private sector where where we where we can make the rules and we can kind of set the parameters of what's going to happen. Uh, if we see a guy that comes in and he is, you know, undersized, under underweight, undersized, doesn't have enough muscle mass to be able to produce a lot of force. Uh, and he's like, I want to go out and do a weighted ball program. Well, we we kind of believe that that's a little bit of a liability if you're not strong enough mm-hmm. to control yourself. So or have enough muscle mass to decelerate uh, a baseball, let alone, you know, a, a heavier weighted implement or lighter, lighter weighted implement, excuse me, either are just as, you know, um, if, we, you know, kind of with quotations dangerous, they're not, I don't see them as dangerous. We see them as tools. We want our athletes to be great athletes and then give them other tools to get there. So it really depends. If you have an elite level thrower, like our professional pitchers that walk through the door after the season, they'll normally take two to four weeks off, maybe two to six, depending on their work volume and, and their family life. And then from there, we figure out, all right, well, you're an elite level thrower. We don't want to have to mess with your mechanics much. We don't, we're not going to mess with your mechanics much unless you need an overhaul right now. And we'll work with their pitching coach. But from there, we need to build up your ability to handle that volume of the next season. Now, a high school kid that does not throw well, doesn't have the opportunity to really have a lot of muscle mass. We we check that box really quickly and say, you know what? We got to put 30 pounds onto you this offseason. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have no chance of throwing 90 miles an hour or 80 or 85 or wherever their metric needs to be. And we just kind of fill those glasses of the the lowest quality and and build it from there. So there might be guys that are that are hitting the 90 mile an hour formula and and barely scraping 90 miles an hour, but they need to implement a weighted ball program. They need to clean up their optimal authentic movement mechanics. So it really just comes down to the athlete. And and if we start as coaches viewing each athlete as their own unique being, that's why I believe we can get really good results with people really quickly. Well I love it. And the other day you tweeted about 
if you're struggling with control, it's likely one, lack of neck, shoulder, and hip mobility, two, lack of strength, and three, uh, mechanical breakdown in that order. Now, staying on the subject of individualization and, and how we can help our, our players throw better and move better, can you talk about those three things? Because me, not, not being in the strength and conditioning world, uh, I'd like to, to know more about that. So can you, can you go in depth with us with that? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think the, the main parameter is we're looking at, does an athlete have the ability to move well? So if they can't authentically just naturally stand up and rotate their neck, the full, the full 90 degrees or 80 degrees, depending on who you're asking and control that motion, just standing, there's no way they're going to be able to do it when they're on the mound. And we look at it very simply as if you can't control what happens at your neck, all of your shoulder musculature, most of your shoulder musculature, excuse me, runs into your neck. So if you lose range of motion at your neck, you're going to lose range of motion at your shoulder. And if you lose range of motion at your shoulder, you're going to be compensating either at your neck, at your shoulder, or at your elbow. Hmm. And I would say a very, very large percentage of our guys that get referred to us that have either UCL issues, UCL pain, or have had Tommy John do not have full mobility of their neck, which I don't think is a coincidence. So that's how that's how we look at it first. We say, do you have full mobility of your neck? Can your chin pass your collarbone when you rotate it to the left and to the right? And if not, we can we can look at that really quickly. And if we can clear it via manual therapy, via movement mechanics, uh, via just training, once we clear it, there's a good chance that if that you were flying open, for instance, as a pitcher and you can't find the strike zone, that you're flying open, not because your shoulder mobility was lacking, but because your neck mobility was lacking and your shoulder mobility was the symptom of that neck mobility. So we look at things in a very orthopedic manner mm-hmm. and then we look at it in a movement manner. So, uh, manner. so those mechanics layer on one another. And if you don't have, you know, coaches talk all the time, they send us a guy and say, oh, he needs more hip, shoulder hip separation. Well, does, does he have, does he have the ability to rotate his neck? Does he have neck, neck, uh, shoulder separation? If he doesn't have that, then shoulder hip separation doesn't even matter because he's not going to be able to get into the right positions. And then we'll look at, you know, the thoracic spine and say, is the thoracic spine, does it have the ability to move well? If it doesn't, we need to clear that. If the hips don't have the ability to move well, then if it doesn't, we have to clear that. And I think, you know, if you go to, if you go to a knee surgeon and you say, Hey doc, what's wrong with my knee? There's a good chance that they're going to look at it and say, how can we fix this via surgery? If you come to me and you say, how are you going to fix this? I'm going to say, well, let's, let's look at some manual therapy. Let's look at your orthopedics. Let's look at how you move. Uh, let's figure out when your pain is. If you go to a baseball coach and say, hey, how are we going to fix these mechanics? They're going to say, well, let's get on the mound. Let's do a weighted ball drill to drive more shoulder hip separation. I think, I think if we can step back one layer for all of us and say, and and appreciate everybody's skill set and understand that if the pitching coach understands that the athlete does not physically have the mobility or the stability to move well through their shoulders and hips, there's no way their mechanics are going to be fixed. We can't, if you can't, you know, there's some people that just pick the wrong parents and don't have good genetic mobility mm-hmm. and they may not be able to, you know, move the way that you want them to as a pitching coach. And we as strength coaches and, and, you know, integrated performance therapists is the, is the, the term we utilize in house. Um, our therapists look at things 
I think in a very broad sense where it's like, you know what, if we can clear them to move well, they need a pitching coach to help bring those mechanics back. And so that tweet kind of covers that whole scheme of, of where are your guys on, on the, um, that top tier of, do they have the movements as their base and foundation? Do they have the strength to handle the load that they're going to be applying into the into the ground or from the baseball or running or decelerating or anything like that? Is it applicable to their skill? And then that last finite bit, do they actually have the ownership of those mechanics? And and I think when we step back and look at it that way, it becomes really easy for us to, to guide our decision making and understand that a pitching coach is is invaluable to our to our team, but we got to understand they have to be used at the right time. And and a strength coach is invaluable to your team, but you're not going to fix um, certain limitations. You're not going to fix a you know a a true um, you know a labral tear, a rotator cuff tear with your strength coach. You're going to need a surgeon for that. So everybody has their place, but we need to co- um, collaborate to make it work for our athletes. Oh, that's I love it and. And like I said, most of our listeners are in the team setting. So let me ask you and take you through a situation, okay? Yep. So mm-hmm. say I was hired tomorrow as the head coach of X high school. And I called you and I said, Josh, I, we have 50 guys in the off season. We have no strength and conditioning coach, which most, most high schools don't have. Where do I start? Like we're talking through the fall. We're talking it's it, – We I might have an assistant, so two people – and just what are your favorite lifts, uh, favorite conditioning? Just throw throw out some stuff that you – I know it's not individualistic like you like, um, yep. in which we would all love. But give us some some lifts that, that are absolutely necessary for everybody. Well, I, I'm going to tease in one more point. Go ahead. I think the first, I think the first thing to do when you're – if you were given that – if I was given that situation tomorrow and I'm in your shoes – I, I march myself down to the athletic trainer right away and sit down with them and show them your goals of the program. Okay. Uh, I think the 90 mile an hour formula, I'm obviously I'm biased, but we've seen it work with over a thousand athletes and we've implemented it in college settings and high school settings. We have our pro athletes that utilize it. It is our overbearing gauge of are we making progress for the right things? I would sit down with the athletic trainer that you have access to or any or anybody that has that kind of background and say, this is our goals. Our goal is that we want every single guy on our roster to be able to have the opportunity to throw 90 miles an hour because that's that's what we're looking for as a, as a group. And we know that that their injury rates are going to go down if they can utilize this with that. Then I would say to the athletic trainer, do you mind helping us run either a functional movement screen an SFMA, a selective functional movement assessment, or some kind of assessment that they deem is in their skill set and they feel comfortable with. And they say, you know what, I could, I could implement this with all of your guys. I, I believe the FMS is a really good tool for, for a coach that, that doesn't have the largest skill set for the training side of it. Um, I think it really has a, a very nice uh, place in, in that, um, in that scope. Uh, it gives you a lot of information very quickly. You can run a whole team through the FMS in a very short amount of time, and it's standardized so that you know you can go back and check your work. Uh, and then from there, you build your program, and you say, well, you know, our goal as a program is to have every single one of our athletes uh, deadlift 400 pounds and every single athlete reverse lunge their body weight for for 10 reps and and let's call it 10 chin-ups for every single athlete. From If those are your team goals and you sit down and explain to your team 
why you want to have those goals because your goal is number one to march them out to the field every single game handle the workload that they're going to have and be healthy and perform the best they possibly can you're not going to perform well from the bench when you, you're laid up because you have knee pain or you have a shoulder issue or you're or you pop your ucl uh, that's always goal number one and then from there build your program and say all right now now let's get you stronger let's get you moving better if you can if you take your catchers and your position players and they're reverse lunging more come the season than they were, you know, in August or September, they're going as long as their body weight didn't go up or if it did go up, it goes up in correspondence of the ratio of their their lunge and their body weight. They're going to move faster and they're going to be more resilient to work volume. So you start to tease that in and then say, now, how do we get how can we get our guys to deadlift more? And maybe you pick one day that's a lower body day and say, you know what, we're going to work on every possible exercise we can get our hands on to get our deadlift to go up. Mm -hmm. And it may not be the perfect ideal situation, but if you look at it in a very simple way and say, how can we load the quads more? How can we load the hamstrings and the glutes? And how can we make sure the back in uh, the torso can handle the force so that their their back is not rounding? That's a great day. And if you look at some of the powerlifting information out there, Westside Barbell has some great stuff uh, that we utilize. It's how do we load these guys and have them more resilient to deadlift more? And then you do the the next day, maybe you say, you know what, we're going to do, we're going to work on the chin up and some upper body strength and, and kind of layer those days in it. You're going to, you're going to have a program that's going to be able to handle a lot more workload and be a lot more directed towards their goals because they know where they're going. Most guys walk into the gym and say, I'm going to get stronger today. That's fine, but are you retesting that? Are you looking at it analytically and saying, all right, well, our whole team, our team average is a 200-pound deadlift right now. Let's get the team average to 300. Can we all get it to 300? And when you have everybody on board and know that the goal is to deadlift 300 as a group, every single person, so that is like the minimum standard, now you're starting to get bigger and stronger athletes that have the buy-in. Well, and you're working in that competitive aspect as well, which I think I think most coaches would agree is it's always good to be competitive, not not just with, you know, not just with other athletes, but with yourself as well. And, you know, you measure what you treasure. And so jumping around a little bit, this is another tweet that you put out uh, yesterday, actually. And it says, trust the process only has value if you're constantly reevaluating progress. Process is important, but what are your key metrics? And you mentioned a couple of them. And uh, I know I'm constantly trying to figure out things that, like you said, the 80-20 rule, what are the few things that I really need to measure that have the most benefit? And you mentioned uh, mound velo, run and guns, exit velo, 60 time, weight, lunge, and chin-ups. So can, are those your favorite things to measure? And is that just, is that your absolute list or that is that just a couple that you found that, that really benefit everything? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, those are, that's a quick snapshot of, of, you know, what was in my head at the moment. Um, those are great metrics to be measuring for a, a baseball team. I think it keeps everybody in check. We always look back and say, what, what is the end goal? And, and how do we, how can we get there the quickest and easiest uh, without injuring anybody and in minimizing the opportunity for, for, um, injuries during games uh, or practices. So for me, those are, those are great metrics as far as what is going to matter for, for a coach. And uh, as a coach, you got to figure out what is the number one thing at the end of the day, as a coach, you know, I'm assuming most coaches are going to say, I want to keep my guys healthy and I want to win every stinking game we possibly can. So 
you know, go undefeated and never have anybody miss a game due to injury. Well, that's I, I'm I'm on board for that. Now you just got to work backwards. And I think it really comes down to the program as a program. What are the things that you can do that are going to make sure you win a game? Um, we have a we have a D2 program locally post university uh, that that has been utilizing us for the past, uh, I'll say, six, seven months. Um, they're awesome. They're really progressive at at the at the college level and they just sent me their their final run and gun numbers for for the for the fall winter time now they really believe that if they can throw harder they're going to win more games now i don't think there's a coincidence that they have they have i believe don't quote me on it but i believe they have eight or nine guys that are that are over you know the 90 mile an hour mark quite a few that are coming close to that 100 mark i think at the d2 level and you have nine eight or nine guys that can march out to the field and and touch 90 basically anytime they want to on the mound they're going to win a lot more games than the you know the other programs that are going to be having guys get out there and maybe touch 90 um you know once every three or four starters i think i think uh that is just a very easy way to look at it and if you're if you're a hitting coach you don't have to worry too much about launch angles if your guys are hitting hitting the ball 103 105 miles an hour off the bat i don't think most high school programs are going to have a third baseman that's going to be able to handle that on a regular basis i just think it, you got to look at that big domino and what is going to knock over every domino in front of it that that makes it so simple that you can you can't lose you know sure and st- staying on the subject of you just mentioned position players and we talked about things to measure for pitchers are, is there a difference in in lifts between the two now granted i work with kids from 14 to 18 19 years old a lot of our listeners are college coaches as well so they'll have them till they're 22 and 23 and you mentioned training the athlete first earlier now you can break it up into two parts if you want, but is there a difference between and what we should be doing with lifts between pitchers and position players? Real, realistically, no, we don't. We don't really look at it like that per se. Uh, we don't strape our bench uh, for the most part. As a general rule of thumb, we don't strape our bench any of our throwers, uh, just because if you look at if you look at power lifters, if you look at the uh, the uh, makeup of guys who do bench quite often. And you look at guys who who bench any any weight that's appreciable that compared to their body weight, they're gonna likely be at a, a much higher rate of labral tears, which is you know something that pitchers are gonna have to deal with. In one sense, uh, pretty much any good pitcher that's thrown above ninety or in the mid eighties is gonna have some kind of labral degeneration and tears, probably some rotator cuff issues as well at some level if they're throwing hard enough. Same thing with position players. So we try to take it's kind of we almost try to shut off stupid with ourselves and just say, you know what? Well, if we know that their pec minor is going to be stapled down and and their their pec major is going to be stapled down from benching and most guys don't even bench properly on top of that, they're going to start to have issues as, as it layers into their their movement mechanics and their shoulder mechanics. So we just take out that exercise for us. That's how we see it. Other than that. I mean, I'm I'm pretty open to anything, and I'm not against benching by any means. We just try to take out the higher risk movements for our athletes to make sure that they have the the movement mechanics to do things properly. So the difference between a pitcher and a you know a shortstop is really none in 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 my stance as far as shoulder goes. They're going to be throwing at at a high rate of volume if they're um if they're getting enough uh, plays and enough practice time, and they're going to be uh, throwing at a 
high intensity if they're playing at any any real level with competition. So they're going to be max effort throwers. And I think if we break it down and make it really, really simple like that, then then that's what really matters. Now, the position players, the only thing we we look at differently is do you need to move fast as a position player? If you need to move fast, your body weight is going to need to be in line with with your uh, reverse lunge numbers. We see that uh, we've seen in-house that our position players that reverse lunge 1.75 times their body weight. So a 200-pound guy is going to reverse lunge uh, 350. If they can reverse lunge 350 for one, they should be in that 6'5", 60 range. Uh, and, and we have guys in college, we have guys that, you know, just turning 18 or, or were 17 at the time uh, in college, 185 pounds reverse lunging 405 for reps of three to five. There's no coincidence that those athletes are able to run in the 6'3 to 6'5 range. So we, you know, him get, gaining, you know, 20, 30 more pounds to try to put more to try to be bigger and stronger may be really good uh, for a position player, but also may take away from some of his speed because I don't know how much heavier his reverse lunge is going to be able to go, you know, from being an 18-year-old kid that can reverse lunge 400, uh, you know, 400 plus pounds. I don't know how much more run he ha- uh, room to run he has with that. So we may not want to have him get bigger, but a pitcher may want to add more more size so they can increase their momentum potential and they can put more force into the ground and they don't have to overcome their body when they're running because they're not running in games. Um, you know, they're not running like, like a position player would be. So that's really the difference. We look at it and, and we, as far as exercise choice, like I said before, it doesn't need to be overthought as long as they can move properly and they're pain three through, through the movements and it's going to help increase their ability on the field. We don't discriminate on the exercises. Well, that's a great answer there, and I, and I love that. I love that we're training our pitchers to be more athletic than the you know the non athletes that uh, the people on Twitter like to throw out at us all the time. So <laughs> yeah, uh, so that's great. So let's flash forward to the end season. Is there a difference in what our lifts should look like, just volume or uh, frequency, or take us through that? Yeah, we we cut volume usually somewhere in half to what they were doing in the off season. And we're looking, we're looking for them to get in two or three times a week. Ideally, we want them to have their sessions be somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes. Most of the time we know that about a 45 minute session is going to really accomplish everything we're looking for. So about 15, 20 minutes for a good long, elongated, um, movement, uh, warm up, making sure that, you know, we're, we're kind of checking the box on each joint, um, making sure things are moving the way we need them to, to be optimal. And then we're going in lifting heavy. We, you know, we do a lot of three by three for our deadlifts, our lunges, uh, things like that. Even our chin up sometimes, we don't spend a lot of time getting a ton of volume in season because we know that they're getting volume of work just from playing playing sports and practicing. So we want to challenge them really hard with some high intensity, more power strength work, and then getting them out of there and making sure they go home and eat and recover. Uh, two or three times a week is like a home run zone. Uh, when we were at when I was at Sacred Heart. We'd be coming in time right before the conference championship, and notoriously, we'd have between you know six and ten days before our conference championship. A lot of programs will take that time and say, you know, we're going to nurse our wounds. We're going to be making sure we're feeling better in general. Whereas our guys, we were setting one rep maxes the week before, and it's funny that you had Zach on, 
And uh, and he was basically saying the same thing. He was like, you know, we're going in and saying, hey, guys, we're going to hit a one rep max on our, our rack pull or our deadlift or uh, our reverse lunge or forward lunge or split squat or whatever the, the exercise was in that cycle. We'll nail a good one rep max. Make sure you have a little bit left in the tank so you're not really trying to crush yourself completely and then move on to the next thing. And that's why we're peaking with our power during that time. And I think a lot of coaches really um, – throw out training during the season. And I think if, especially at the high school level, you got a, you got a, a hidden gem in your pocket. If you can train two or three times during the season and keep your guys healthy and powerful, we see a lot of guys that, that lose, you know, they'll, they'll start the season and they'll lose five miles an hour in the season. They, they call us and they're like, what's going on? I'm like, well, what's your body weight? And they're like, oh, well, you know, coach has been running us like crazy. We've been doing our, our two and five mile runs three or four times a week and I just can't keep weight on. Well, there's a reason why momentum potential is in there, you know? Right. Definitely. Two to five mile an hour runs. Um, <laughs> interesting. We'll, we'll keep it at that. What are some of your favorite, favorite pre and post throwing exercises? I know I'm always looking for just something different to help out with shoulder stability or just anything to, to get them loose and, and get them ready to go. So what are some of your favorite things to do before you throw and after? We actually uh, implement everything we do before we'll do after throwing as well. So it's really a, a nice elongated 10 to 20 minute good warm up. So very simply like walking lunges, lunges, overhead reaches, um, lunges with rotation, Lateral squats, we do some bear crawls to get the shoulder firing up. Reverse bear crawls are probably my favorite. We do uh, different push-up variations, whether it's a yoga or downward dog push-up or regular push-up. We'll do some um, some prone push-ups too to kind of get some extension in that upper upper back. Um, we'll do some hip flexor mobility work. And then and then really, I think the key with, with anybody is kind of having their own rituals we have guys, uh, Troy Scribner is one of our guys. He's, he's with the, he's been with us for eight, eight to nine years now, closer, closing to closing on nine years. Um, he is now with the Los Angeles angels. Uh, he is in their bullpen and he, he loves, he loves using his Jaeger bands before he goes and, and throws. He loves getting some, some kind of band work done just to fire up his shoulder. He's got his own little routine and there's there's something to be said about having a routine that knows that you know works well for you. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not causing him any pain or discomfort, we let him run with whatever he needs to on that because that's something that he has found works for him. And and I think it's important for athletes to not only uh, find what works for them, but also communicate to their coaches what works for them and why they believe it works. Because if we had all the answers, every single one of our athletes would be throwing 100 miles an hour and they'd all be in the major leagues. So I think feeling out what's going to work best for you is is important on top of making sure that you hit every joint, whether it's your ankle, hip, shoulder, thoracic spine, cervical spine, making sure those things are moving well before you get out to the mound and throw. Oh, that's great. I wish we all had that uh, that formula, the, the 100 mile an hour formula, right? <laughs> Me too. So let's hop into the advice section and let's hear what you've been learning lately and, and some resources. But first question, uh, what have you learned lately that you're really excited about? You know, Brian, Brian D'Onofrio is, is our head strength coach in our Stanford office and he brings, he's really diving deep into the PRI stuff. I think there's, there's definitely some neurological stuff there that, uh, that really helps me remap the brain, whether it's for, uh, pain reduction or, 
proper movement or or just breathing patterns that are going to facilitate proper movement. Um, as so he brings a lot of that information to me, and we kind of try to sift through it and debate and and argue those points. And um, you know, we have we have other therapists that are bringing different dry needling and chiropractic techniques that are that are awesome. It's it's good to see that there's constant evolution in different portions of the health and and wellness fields. And then you know the some of the acupuncture stuff we've seen incredible results. I'll give you I'll give you um one from this summer, we had two guys ironically came in the same exact day. Um, both had left shoulder pain. One was a left-handed thrower. One was a right-handed swinger, right-handed thrower, but had horrific left shoulder pain, a 10 out of 10, like put him on the table. He reaches his arm up overhead. Like he's going to just reach straight up overhead and would be screaming like, like bloody murder. And I was I was not sure what to think of it um, when we first got him. So both these guys have terrible shoulder pain. We kind of dug in the the guy who had the the 10 out of 10 shoulder pain that was screaming on the table. He had already been for MRIs, x-rays, um, been to conventional therapy for, for months on end, and really nothing shook out for him. So we did some, some basically some modified Chinese medicine uh, intake on them and come to find out they both had sprained ankles within the last six months. Uh, on their right ankle. So Chinese medicine pointed us to use a uh, dry needling acupuncture technique on the right ankle, stuck one needle in both of their right ankles and both of their shoulder pain cleared up. I think acupuncture and dry needling and all these other techniques we have, they literally just influence the brain. And the more we start learning about how the brain is mapped and really what is what how we're influencing it and what we can take out of it and then how we can better apply it really opens the door for us to to treat athletes faster and get them on the field quicker it's really remarkable stuff when you see it and it's almost hard to explain unless you see it firsthand uh because i am not the deepest believer in all of acupuncture i think there's a lot of like a lot of garbage out there same thing with some old school techniques that other practitioners are throwing around but i think there is a time and a place for just about everything and you know the the more we learn about the brain that we can influence the body from is really where the next level um thinkers are at right now that's really interesting stuff and i'm not gonna lie a little bit over my head as far as acupuncture and i think you're the first person to mention acupuncture on the show so congratulations with that and and here's the thing i think i think i think acupuncture is blown blow acupuncture out of the uh into a realm that it probably shouldn't uh and there's a lot of foo-foo stuff out there with it that i don't appreciate because it really devalues the 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 tool and the skill set and then i think dry needling is a wonderful tool that we utilize as well uh in our practices you know therapists whether they be you know some athletic trainers can use it chiropractors pts it's within their skill set and there's a lot of tools with it at the end of the day it's all on how we're influencing the brain and and I think it gets thrown into a whole realm of, of oh, you know, we're trying to align different meridians and different schemes and, and trying to do this with the body and whatever. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to the brain. The brain is going to tell us what we're feeling, how we're feeling, why we move, how we move. It's The brain controls everything. And the sooner we appreciate that, you know, every time you give someone a weighted ball, you're training the brain a different way. I don't think it's a good or a bad thing. I think it's, are you applying the right tool at the right time for the right athlete? And I think that is the gold that we need to figure out with every single one of our athletes. Definitely. And 
just as you were talking about it, I just remember this for some reason, but our head coach was having some arm pain last year, some shoulder pain, and couldn't really lift his elbow above his shoulder at all, and went and got some acupuncture done just as kind of a last resort, and it had helped him a ton. I don't think he missed... He missed a day after that. So that, you know, that that's something that, that we can all look into. And, and like you said, it may work for some and it, it might not work for some other people. Yeah. And it's, and again, there's, there's ways you got to tease it out. And, you know, there's some guys that are, that are move better as pitchers and some guys that should never step foot on the mound, but they're great in left field and they can drive the crap out of the ball. So I think it's just picking the right tool at the right time for the right person. Well, you seem like a guy that's that's very well educated and and self educated as well. So, what are some of your favorite resources, books, programs, etc., that you can recommend for us if we want to dig more into uh, some of the topics that you discussed today? Yeah, I um, I really, I really like basically everything that uh, Eric Cressy puts out. I think we can all disagree with different points with with every single person out there, but I think overarching. Uh, the information he puts out is always dead on. And if you're going to disagree with it, that's fine. But you but you have to at least understand that it comes in in a um, scope of fact. And, and I really like when people are basing the information on science and fact. I really like the spin rate stuff that Driveline is putting out right now. I think I think that is I think that will end up being the next level for our for our pitchers. I think spin rate is one of the most underrated analytical tools we have for our pitchers right now. And when it's mastered, I think I think it's going to really help us develop pitchers that are at the next level. And then I think uh, for all coaches that are that are really trying to dig into this stuff, exposing themselves to a local strength coach that that really understands um you know, movement, uh, first of all, and then ideally, you know, how to work with baseball players is a great opportunity to, to learn. And I have yet to bump into a really highly qualified uh, strength coach that understands, you know, the finer points of this stuff that isn't willing to either block off some time or schedule a visit or or something like that. And and it may be it may have to be a small investment to to jump in there and and spend an hour with them and consult and and see what they're thinking and, and how they go about it. But it's also I think those hours can be really, really beneficial. Uh, believe me, it's it's no coincidence that I try when I go to different places around the country to try to get on other people's schedules and get treatment. Not that I'm in pain, but I want to see how people approach it. And and I think that the more we can be exposed to people that have different philosophies but come from an evidence-based background allows us to grow as a community. Well, Josh, I know as a community, we really do appreciate you coming on the show and, and explaining a lot of this this stuff that most high school, college coaches don't know enough about. And, and I know before we started talking, we, we talked about how this is this is an area that I think we can all grow in. So thank you again for coming on the show. But for the listeners who want to get in contact with you and, and learn more about it or ask specific questions, uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, I'm at uh, Dr. Heenan on uh, Instagram and primarily uh, on Twitter. I am at uh, Josh underscore Heenan, H-E-E-N-A-N. And my website, my personal website is joshheenan.com. Uh, the company is Advanced Therapy and Performance. Our website is advancedtherapyperformance.com. And John, you know, I really, as I said to you before we got on this call, I really appreciate what you're doing there to put out stuff. It's, you know, it's time out of your day and, and it's a lot of, uh, a lot of lead up time to prepare and then a lot of 
post-production time to make sure it goes out in a format that people are going to enjoy and and make sure that they they absorb. And, you know, it's it's people like you that are putting out the information that it really allows us to grow as a community. And I think the, the further we can go as far as building the community together and have everybody working together and, you know, if you have the answers, share them. Uh, and if you don't, then let's try to learn them together. And I think what you're doing is is really is really great for the community. Well, Josh, I appreciate that. And before you go, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners, any other topic you'd like to discuss or just anything you want to throw out there? Uh, yeah, I think the only last thing I would say is we are in the process of putting out what we're hoping to be the largest study on baseball players that has ever been done. We're shooting to get somewhere between 10 and 100,000 uh, baseball players into the database. Uh, we're going to be testing basically very similar to the 90 mile an hour formula plus some orthopedic screens. And we're going to be testing and tracking over a three to 10 year time window. And we want to start to really put some validity behind what we're doing and disprove a lot of the information that we may believe is is currently correct. And we've been able to track different rates of UCL tears, uh, different rates of shoulder pain, different rates of hip dysfunction based on some of the information on the 90 mile an hour formula. And we want to do it as a broad scale. So we're trying to open that up in the next couple of weeks um, from when this is going to be released. And I would love to see uh, you know, every single coach, get every one of their athletes in on this study. It's super easy. It's free. We're going to offer resources for people that come in and do it. And, and we can follow up with them. We can follow up through email and give them, uh, information that we're finding out. And, you know, for instance, like our chin up right now, we see that the chin up is the number one indicator for not having arm and shoulder pain. We have found, you know, testing that, that guys that are over, um, the 10 body weight chin up mark and with the caveat doing good chin ups, they are somewhere between 90 and 99% less likely to have a shoulder injury than the counterparts that do less than chin ups, uh, less than 10 chin ups, excuse me. So it's information like that, that we want to share with the community and build it. But we need athletes in the study to be able to produce really good quality research that we can, that we can, you know, share with validity to it. And for those wanting to help with that, would they just reach out to you? Uh, yeah, we're going to actually have it on the advancedtherapyperformance.com website. And that will be really easy for them to sign up. And it should only take like five or 10 minutes on a questionnaire. And that's it. And we're going to follow up a couple times a year. Cool. And when is that set to come out? Uh, we're shooting for somewhere in February or March. Perfect. I love it. Well, Josh, again, thanks for being on the show and, and really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through everything. And, and again, thanks for being on. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. I hope you enjoyed the show and got something from our outstanding guest. If you're wanting to listen to past shows and get alerts for new ones, Ahead of the Curve is now available on the Texas High School Baseball Coaches Association app, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Please consider writing a review or rating the show so other coaches can find and stay ahead of the curve.